Open up to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We are going to be looking at one verse today. Just one. Uh, If you know anything about me as a preacher, that does not mean that the sermon will be shorter. And, And we will be looking at some other verses, but this is going to be our main text. And as you're turning there... I was struck this week by the impact that teachers have in our lives because we're going to be talking about the teachers or the teachings of Jesus. And and it just made me think about teachers in my life that have had a big impact. I've shared some of these before. I had a teacher in high school, my physics teacher, Mr. Wegley. Uh, He he would talk about in equations and studying uh, experiments and things. And he would use the phrase lights flash and bells ring. He's like, when you see this, you need to use this equation. He had such passion. I just loved it. And he was a godly Christian man. Uh, and you've probably heard me use that phrase before, lights flashing, bells ringing. That's that's Mr. Wegley. That's him speaking through me. In fact, I looked him up. He is actually retiring this year. Uh, he became a district superintendent of a school system out there. So that was really cool. It's kind of neat to see that he's still going and that he's, uh, he's retiring. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I grew up going to church. But we moved in between junior and senior high. And my parents struggled to find a church. And my brother and I found a church nearby. It's just a really gospel-centered, solid church. My brother drove at that time. Oh, he still drives. Um, I didn't drive at that time. And so I would go with my brother to this church. And it was, it was interesting because we made the decision to go to this church. And God really used that church in a powerful way to deepen my relationship with Christ. And there were three people there in particular, teachers, that really had an impact on my life. My youth pastor, Pastor Rich. Uh, just his teaching and his example. I had a discipleship leader, Dave Soderstrom, who taught a men's small group, men's, boys, small group, uh, high school kids. And uh, that was just powerful. And then there was an associate pastor, and I, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was David. That's easy to remember. Um, but he would teach, and, and people would ask him a question about something, and he would always answer this way. Well, based on what I know so far about the word of God and what God has taught me, and then he would give his answer. And I love that, the humility. It was never, well, this is the answer. And it was never, I've come to a conclusion on the matter. It was, I'm still in process. And just what a great uh, example of a man just saturated by the word of God. Had a professor at Moody, Dr. Pate, um, Man, he would talk, he was teaching theology, and he would talk about, you know, traditions, denominations, other groups that we don't agree with, but he would talk about them with such humility and just such love and and compassion, and I love that. There's so many teachers over the years that have shaped me and guided me and, and prepared me to be able to do what I do here on a regular basis, and I'm sure you could list some in your life as well. But as powerful as those things are, Jesus is different. Jesus is a teacher, but he's not just a teacher. And that's a very important distinction that I'm afraid too many people don't make. He is a teacher. We need to learn from him. We're going to look at some of his teachings this morning, but he's not just another teacher. He is different from my college professor or my youth pastor. He is not just another good teacher in our lives. 
We're in this sermon series, Focal Point. We're going all the way through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And we've looked at Old Testament themes and how they point to Jesus Christ as the focal point of Scripture. And then we've gotten now to the New Testament time, and we spent time on Christmas morning looking at how Jesus fulfills some Old Testament prophecies. We then, last week, we looked at the question, who is Jesus? How does John help us to answer that question in John chapter 1? And soon we're going to get to the cross and the resurrection. Can't talk about Jesus without that. Absolutely crucial and essential. But I didn't want to jump over the fact that Jesus wasn't just born and then went to the cross and the resurrection. There's a whole time in the middle that he taught and he lived and he dealt with people. And his life and his teachings are very important to look at as well. In fact, Jesus taught a lot Most of the Gospels are made up of of the words of Jesus and the teachings that he gave to people, whether it's in a big crowd or small group settings or one-on-one. Even just the little things that Jesus did were, were a part of his teaching. In fact, people would call him teacher or rabbi. And in that day, rabbis didn't have classrooms. They didn't get a group of students together and sit down and say, now I'm going to tell you things. Rabbi said, come here, follow me. Go where I go, listen to me along the way, watch what I do. Teachers taught by having their students watch them. And the goal of the students was to act like and become like their teacher. We don't obviously have time to look at everything Jesus taught. Big passages of scripture, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the Kingdom Parables, and many others. Massive passages of scripture that we just don't have time to look at. So I thought... How can we look at the main point of what Jesus taught? Is there one main theme that we could use to sum up everything that Jesus said? Now, some would answer that as, well, of course, Jesus taught us to love others as you love yourself. Golden rule. Straight from the mouth of Jesus. That's good. It's important. It is not the sum total of Jesus' teachings, though. Some would Go a little bit further. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love others as yourself. There, Jesus said that's the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, and that's good. But that's not the sum total of his teaching. So the question is, does Scripture give us an overarching summary of Jesus' teaching? Because the other answer that a lot of people give today, especially outside the church, but even inside the church, is Jesus simply taught us to love. The problem is, our idea of love has become so convoluted. Our definitions of love and the authority of who gets to define what love is has shifted from God, our creator, to us with our own desires and wants so that when we say the sum total of Jesus' teaching is love, what we mean by that so often is a very selfish idea and self-centered idea of what love is. And I would suggest it's not enough to summarize Jesus' teachings by simply saying he taught us to love. So what if? What if the Bible came to us and said, this is the summary of Jesus' teachings? This is the main topic. Wouldn't that be helpful? Wouldn't you know it? It does. In multiple places, it says, you want to know what Jesus taught? 
the main thing he taught and that everything else falls in line under this one topic. You want to know what it is. We see it in the Gospels. And the main one we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. He tells us about um, a little bit of his early life. He goes into John the Baptist then in, in John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, goes into Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness, and then it comes up on his public ministry. He is about to go out and preach and teach in public for the first time. And Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, is saying, how do I sum up what Jesus would talk about? And this is the phrase he uses, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I'm guessing that Matthew uses that phrase to sum up his his teaching, Jesus's teaching, because he heard Jesus use that phrase over and over and over again. But maybe that's just Matthew. It's helpful if we can see it in the other Gospels as well. Mark says it this way, describing the same thing, the beginning of Jesus' teaching. The time has come, he, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke tells us that Jesus has a conversation with his disciples about what they should be doing. And Jesus tells his disciples, he's talking about why he needs to travel to some other places, says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. The good news of the kingdom of God. John, John's gospel is a little different. If you, if you know, he wrote later, he was, seems like he was very familiar with what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. He wasn't trying to repeat those things. So he writes some different accounts, some different settings. But early in the Gospel of John, Jesus has a conversation with this man, Nicodemus, a, a religious teacher and a religious authority. And Nicodemus asks Jesus a question about Jesus's miracles. Basically, he's like, hey, You do these miracles, you must be from God. There's kind of an implied question of what's up with that. Who are you? And it's interesting because Jesus' reply seems to have nothing to do with miracles. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And so many times I've heard this taught, and I've probably even taught it myself this way. You know, Nicodemus had this question, but Jesus turned it to what he really wanted to talk about. I don't think that's true. Nicodemus was saying, what's up with the miracles? And Jesus says, oh, they're all about the kingdom. They reveal the kingdom of God. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So this is where I want us to spend our time today. Looking at what does it mean that Jesus taught us to repent for the kingdom of God is near. Or the kingdom of heaven. That phrase is used interchangeably in scripture. Sometimes it's kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But this, I would suggest, is the main thrust of all of Jesus' teachings. You can see and understand all of what Jesus taught through this phrase right here. So I want to look at these three things. What is the kingdom of heaven? 
What is its point and its purpose in Jesus' teaching? What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has come near? And then what does it mean that because of that we should repent? So that's where we're going to go today, just picking apart this verse. So let's start with the kingdom of heaven. What is it and why is it so important? Well, we know it's important because Jesus talks about this subject, I would suggest, more than anything else. He mentions the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels over 100 times. So what is it? It's helpful to understand what the people of Jesus' day would have heard when he said the kingdom of heaven. God had promised his people that he would give them his chosen king to rule over them and to set things right. Israel was living under the uh, oppressive control of the Roman Empire at this time. They had some freedom, but it was a very difficult life. And they were looking for the day that God's king, God's Messiah, would come and deliver them and overthrow the Roman Empire and set things right. So they would have heard this. When Jesus says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is is near, they would have been like, yes, God's going to make everything right. Our country will be made perfect. Our land will be made whole. Everything's going to be great. But Jesus makes it very clear that he's referring to a very different type of kingdom. In John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. He says that that thing you think about the kingdom and this world and this life and this government, he says, no, 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 we're talking about something different. There's something very unexpected about the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. In Matthew 13, he offers several parables, short stories, usually with like a word picture to help us to understand. And in Matthew 13, over and over again, he says the kingdom of heaven is like something. And he uses things that they were familiar with. In Matthew 13, 3, says the kingdom of heaven is like a sower throwing seed. The seed that is just spread everywhere. And the message of the kingdom goes out to everybody, but not everyone replies or responds, rather, in the same way. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, again, is like a farmer sowing seed. But then he says, but an enemy comes and sows weeds. And the weeds... And the good crop grow up together, and a time comes where they must be separated. Matthew 13, 31, he says, kingdom is like a mustard seed, and it starts really super tiny, and then it grows into this big tree. He says in Matthew 44 to 46, he talks about the kingdom like a treasure that's hidden. And then in 13, 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that catches all kinds of fish, but they must be separated out. And somebody gives everything that they have to buy that field. Or a pearl that a merchant sees in a marketplace. And he says, I will give up everything to buy this. It is something that everybody else would have walked by and not noticed. You catching a theme here? There's kind of a hiddenness to the kingdom of heaven. This didn't make sense with their idea of a human king that was going to come and conquer. You don't miss that. The king marches in with his army and overthrows your oppressive government. And like nobody misses that. But he's talking about a kingdom 
that for a while seems very hidden. These kingdom parables show us that it was not what the people thought. Christ is talking about a different type of kingdom. It's hidden. Some will miss it. It's here and now, but some won't accept it or see it. So what is this kingdom he's talking about? And the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus is not talking about making this world better. So many Christians today, they use this phrase, and I hear it over and over and over again. And and there's even songs, worship songs, which are bad. We bring the kingdom. And there's an emphasis that's being taught in churches. We are to change this world into the kingdom. That is not what Scripture says. It's not. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, hey, forget this world. They're all lost. They're all going to hell. It doesn't matter. Let's do our own thing. Not saying that. And, and I get it. There's an emphasis in churches to try to get away from that kind of idea that sometimes some churches have, and they want to get to let's get involved in this world. It is good to get involved in this world. It is good to help people. It is good to love people. It is certainly good to help the poor. But it is wrong to think that it is our job in this world to change the world to become the kingdom. That leaves Jesus out of the picture. Let me tell you three essential elements of the kingdom of heaven. To have a kingdom, you need a king. Without a king, there is no kingdom. So any idea of being a Christian that is making this world a better place without the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ just makes people more comfortable on their way to hell. They need a king because it's the king that saves them. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is all about Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus taught about the kingdom because he is the king and he had come. And he is trying to get them to see who he is. So the first element of a kingdom is you need a king. The second element is you need people that serve the king. Not people with fond thoughts about the king. Not people that act the way the king wants them to act, but disregards who the king is. You need people that have committed themselves to the king. The kingdom of heaven is about people saved by Jesus Christ. There is no spread or growth of the kingdom of heaven in this world without people who are saved by Jesus Christ. And if we want to hold on to some idea of it's our role to spread the kingdom, that's the way we need to define it. We spread the kingdom by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every time somebody gets saved, the kingdom spreads. That's how the kingdom spreads in this world. Jesus called people to believe in him, to trust in him as their king, their Lord, and their savior. And the entrance to the kingdom of heaven is not some place, it's not some gate that we just need to find or go there, and it's not just a list of rules that we need to live by. The entrance to the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ, being saved by who he is and what he did. Finally, to have a kingdom, you need a king, you need people, and you need a place a land. We see this throughout Scripture being emphasized. God creates all of the heavens and the earth, and then he builds the Garden of Eden. 
And there he lives and he meets with Adam and Eve. And you have King God reigning over everything and his people living in the Garden of Eden in relationship with him. But then sin enters the world. And then in the Exodus, God goes to his people enslaved in Egypt and he promises them something. He says, I will be with you and I will lead you and I will save you. But then he says, I will take you to a land I have promised you. A place that he will live among them and they will be his people and he will be their God. But throughout the Old Testament, as we saw, as we walked through the Old Testament, God's people constantly struggled to submit to his kingship. Because they always wanted to rule themselves. They wanted to be their own kings and their own queens. And we still do that today. And throughout the Old Testament, these prophecies started to come of a coming king. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this is probably familiar to you from things like Handel's Messiah. It says, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we have this promise pointing ahead throughout the Old Testament to a king who was to come and who would live among his people and they would live with him. And then if we flip forward all the way to the end of scripture, Revelation 21, 3, there's this beautiful picture of this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven and and God reigning on the surface of heaven throughout all eternity. And John records, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you hear the three themes? You have a king, you have people who serve the king, recognize who the king is, submit to the king, and you have a place where the people live under the loving care of their king. This is why Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven over and over again. He is tying into these grand themes of scripture. All of them point us to Jesus Christ. But there's another thing about the kingdom and this hiddenness. We have to go to the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. We're going to go back to this a few times in John 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus very truly, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Sometimes I think we struggle with that phrase because we've heard it so much. Are you a born-again Christian? Have you been born again? It kind of becomes this lingo that we use. But Nicodemus has the appropriate response. My translation is basically he said, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? That makes no sense whatsoever. How can someone be born again? I mean, you get one shot to be born, and that's it. He literally says... Can someone enter their mother's womb again? No. How can you be born again? But Jesus is making such an important point because he takes this conversation and he directs it to the kingdom. 
And everything in this conversation is explaining to Nicodemus the big deal about the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you don't enter the kingdom by acting different. You don't enter the kingdom by going to a different location. You enter the kingdom by becoming a different person. Something has to die and end in who you are and be born again. A new birth into a new existence and a new relationship. And it's interesting that all of this discussion started by Nicodemus asking about the miracles. And what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you want to see what the kingdom looks like? Look at the miracles. And I love this about Jesus' miracles. Think about what we know to be true about heaven. No more crying. No more sin. No more death. No more sickness. Think about Jesus' miracles. People that were sick, he touched and they were healed. People that were dead, he called forth and they were made alive. The miracles are demonstrations of the kingdom. They show us what what is going to be true in the kingdom of God. But all of this requires that we must be born again. The kingdom is the main emphasis in everything that Jesus teaches. He teaches that the king has come and that his kingdom looks different than this world. It is a spiritual kingdom where born-again people live in right relationship with their king. And briefly, we can go through all of the teachings of Jesus and understand them through this setting. Matthew chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' longest sermons. And it starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And he goes on and on, and all of these things are so unexpected. What do you mean those people are blessed? They suffer and they struggle. He says, because their kingdom that they're a part of is not of this world. And they are truly blessed by God. He goes on through the rest of the Sermon of the, on the Mount and talks about various Old Testament laws. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't get divorced. Don't uh, pay retribution on your enemies or those that have hurt you. And for each thing, he says, it's not enough to just do this outwardly. He says, what's in your heart? What, what's behind why you're doing this? Because the kingdom is about being new people living out new motivations. Everything that Jesus taught pointed to or was a demonstration of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But he says then the kingdom of heaven has come near. What did he mean by that? In Luke chapter 17 verses 20 to 21, he's asked about this and Jesus replies, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. There are many places in the Gospels Jesus talks about the kingdom as being here. It has come. It is here and now it has arrived. And then we go to Mark 14, verses 24 to 25. said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. said, truly, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Whoa, Jesus. Now you're saying the kingdom of heaven is future something yet to come. When is the kingdom of God? When he says it's coming near, does he mean it's here or it is yet to come? And the answer is yes. 
And I want to teach you a phrase. Three words. Yep, three words. Here's the first word, already. And the last two words are not yet. Already and not yet. I guess that ends up being four. The kingdom of heaven is already. It is here. There is an aspect of the kingdom that has come. It has broken through into the kingdom of this world. And it is here and it is now. The king has come. And the kingdom is broken through. People are being saved by Jesus. We are inhabitants and citizens of the king and the kingdom. It has broken through and it is already here. But there are aspects of the kingdom that are not yet. Jesus is coming again. We will have a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus will reign in that new heavens and new earth forever and ever. John, uh, Jesus says in John fourteen thirteen, he was going to prepare a place for his followers, so that they could be with him. That's future. So there is an already aspect to the kingdom. It is here and now. There is also a not yet aspect to it. There are parts that are still coming. Because the kingdom is wherever the king reigns. And Jesus has come and he reigns among his people. Every person that is saved by Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, when we accept Jesus as our savior, We enter into that new kingdom and we become ambassadors, representatives of that new kingdom. And one day Christ is going to return and reign forever and ever. So the kingdom is near. It's already here, but there's an aspect that's still yet to come. But there's one more important part of that near, which is this. It is a limited time offer. It is near. Don't miss it. Listen to the message of the kingdom. Now is the time for the gospel to be preached and accepted and believed in. Now is the time for us as kingdom representatives to live the kingdom so others can see and to point them to Jesus Christ so they can be saved. Which leads to the final point. What is the response to the message that the kingdom of heaven is near? And Jesus said it in one word, repent. Man, we don't like this word today. There is no way to understand repentance without dealing with sin, condemnation, guilt, the fact that we are going in the wrong direction. All of that has to be brought in as we deal with what it means to repent. Jesus says we must repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The biblical definition of repentance is admitting you are going in the wrong direction. There is no repentance without admitting you are going in the wrong direction. And right away our world shuts down and says, "Uh uh-uh, I want none of that. Because we don't want to be told that we're wrong. We want to be told that we can be better. Biblical repentance starts with us accepting and admitting we are wrong. Biblical repentance also requires change. Involved in repentance is a changed mind, admitting that we are sinners, accepting God's truth, accepting who Jesus is, and listening to his authority and his word. It is echoing the words of Psalm 51, 1 through 4, where the psalmist cries out in his sinful guilt, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my, all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. That's repentance. Do you know what's missing from all of that? Oh God, I did this, but it's not really my fault. Oh God, somebody else caused me to do this. Oh God, it's really not that big a deal. No, repentance is, God, I screwed up. And you are right in judging me that I am wrong. I agree with you in your judgment. That's the beginning of repentance. But it doesn't stop there. Repentance also involves and requires a changed direction and changed actions. We must go in a new direction, not just try harder, not just try to improve ourselves, but to stop going in the direction we're going and do a 180 and go in the new direction. That's repentance. We turn away from sin and we turn toward Jesus. We need to repent. We have, just like the people of old, set ourselves up as kings and queens in our own little kingdoms. And Jesus did not come to bless our own little kingdoms. He came to demolish them and to invite us into something so much better. But we must admit that we are wrong and accept that Jesus is the one true king and that his kingdom is all that matters. That's what he meant when he said, repent. He didn't come just to make this world better, but to point to a new and different kingdom. Don't skip repentance along the way in your relationship with Jesus. You can't skip that step. And it's not just a first step. All along the way, we need to think about where am I wrong? Where do I need to come in line with what Jesus is and what he says and with his kingdom? Repentance should be the ongoing attitude of the Christian life. Jesus' teachings still matter today. Not just in the sense of listen to them and they're a smart way to live, but because they describe who we are as God's people. We are to live this way, not because it's better, but because it represents a different kingdom. And that's what people need to see. I want to go back to Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Maybe you're here today and you're religious. Maybe you're here today and you're spiritual. Maybe you're here today and you, you love God. And, and maybe you read the Bible and go to some Bible studies or some other churches. And that's great. Maybe you're here today and you've been in this church for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. But here's the question. Are you actually born again? Not just trying to be harder, not just being more spiritual, not just fixing up your life. Have you given your life to King Jesus? So that the old you that was headed in the wrong direction is dead, buried, and gone. And the new you is risen a new life in Jesus Christ. Last week we had Dominic's baptism. 
That's what the picture is. You're lowered into the water. The old me is dead. You're raised out of the water. The new me is saved by Jesus Christ. It's a living demonstration of the gospel. Have you been born again? He says in John chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ever gone to heaven except the, uh, the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. We need someone to come into our kingdoms from the outside to show us a new way. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to just make us better. And all this leads up to the most famous passage in John chapter 3 and maybe in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. That through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. If you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus as king of your life, your Lord and your Savior, make today the day. But this message is not just for people who are not yet following Jesus. It's also for us who are following Jesus. Jesus' teachings describe the new priorities we are to live out. We are kingdom people living in a non-kingdom world. And we are going to look weird. And people are not going to accept it. There's so much pressure on the church today to change what we hold to be true to conform to society. If we do that, we lose the message of the kingdom. Because then all we're showing the society is a mirror reflecting who they are. And we are to be a spotlight shining the light of Jesus into this world. And we cannot do that if we give up the truth of God that he's given us. This is eternal kingdom truth that will last forever. The ways of this world are passing away. Don't give in to them. As hard as it is, with love and mercy and grace, keep holding on to the truth of what our king has taught us and know that the king is coming back to reign forever and ever. And so I call us today to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us for setting up our own kingdoms. We do it so often without even realizing it or even meaning to. We just, we don't think about it and we put ourselves first in our own thoughts and our own desires and our own preferences. We put them first and then we ask you sometimes in our more spiritual moments to bless those things. God, I pray for myself and on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive us for asking you to bless our kingdoms. I pray instead, Father, you would conquer our kingdoms, overthrow us as little kings and queens, and claim us as your children in your new and everlasting kingdom. May we bow before the foot of your throne, being saved through our King Jesus, who will reign forever and ever. May we follow him, come what may. And in doing so, may we live in such a way that demonstrates to everyone else the beauty of the kingdom so that we could invite them to come and meet King Jesus, who can be their savior as well. We pray this in the powerful name of our King.
Amen.